welcome to the Inclusive Leader Podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. Mental health and well-being have emerged as key issues in many organizations, mostly catalyzed by the COVID pandemic and the multiple crises ever since. This makes attention to mental health and well-being a key aspect of inclusive leadership. Illuminating this issue and equipping leaders with the awareness, skills, and guidance in decision-making and culture-shaping has been the focus of Joan Nicholas, founder of Wellbeing Outfit, a leading provider of mental health and well-being programs. I am delighted to share this expansive conversation with you. Since my conversation with Jono took us through a lot of territory and lasted longer than many of the other conversations, we've decided to make it available in two parts. So please enjoy this first part. So let me dive right in, uh, Jono. What do you do? Uh, so I'm running an organization called The Wellbeing Outfit. And the work that we do is helping individuals, teams, and organizations align the well-being of their staff with the performance of their organization. So we have the great joy of consulting to big global organizations um, through to tiny NGOs, but really with this central idea of how do we help organizations, teams, and individuals align high well-being and high performance, knowing that for most people being great at work means sacrificing their well-being and looking after their well-being is often viewed as not being fully committed to work. And so we're really helping change that paradigm, um, which is a really exciting space to be. Especially through the COVID experience, I think this, this connection between well-being and performance it has really risen into in everybody's consciousness. I think. Yeah, I think it was very. It was a fundamental change. I've been in mental health and wellbeing for the better part of twenty five plus years. I would say it definitely accelerated through COVID, and for some very unusual factors. York, I think. You know, firstly, the relationship between employees changed as people started breaking down the walls of their life. You know, I spent a lot of time talking with people where kids are in the background, dogs are in the background. And normally that, if you think pre-pandemic, a couple of factors. Firstly, we didn't do video conversations. So to have a conversation with people at work, you would have been on a really bad teleconference where you talk over someone, someone apologises, the audio doesn't quite work, but you have no other cues. Then we went into video conferencing and then we went into video conferencing in people's personal spaces. And so the, the blur between work and personal life changed fundamentally just because of video. Put aside the pandemic. Then you had this other part, which is people had a global shared experience in a way that we haven't seen in other times. Probably the, the last time I think it would have happened um, probably would have been World War where people had this sense of shared experience, but even that was very delayed in the you know World War One, World War Two. People had to wait a week for the media to catch up to what was happening in other countries. Whereas this was happening in real time, you could talk to 
yourself in Germany and talk about lockdowns there and in Australia the same. And so this sense of we're connected by humanity was a really fascinating thing that, that meant people were able to be a lot more vulnerable. And from a mental health and wellbeing point of view, it was okay to be scared. That wasn't seen as a low performance thing that if you were anxious, if you were worried, if you were scared, that was just a completely appropriate thing to talk about because we had this shared experience. That was the second part. And then the third part, I think, for a lot of leaders is the sense of gap between them and their staff disintegrated. Organisations culturally flattened during that time. And so staff got to see their leaders in their home. You know, I had spent a lot of time advising leaders through the pandemic and saying to them, you have to understand that you all joined a reality television show that you didn't realise you've joined. You've gone from having one-on-one conversations to broadcasting yourself sometimes to thousands of your staff members on television and they're judging you like they judge a politician. And I think for a lot of leaders that created this sense of intimacy with their people that they haven't otherwise had and that I hope on reflection they take away. So from a mental health and wellbeing point of view, we saw this shared experience, this sense of vulnerability as people were able to share their personal lives and the people's relationship to work changed. And the final thing that I spoke a lot to leaders about, you it's really important, is what did the pandemic do? The pandemic atomised us. We, we were literally told if we leave our home, the world outside is scary. And when we're scared psychologically, the human impulse is to gather, right, because our sense of fear is we're best protected rather than from each other. And so it's a very, very unusual experience to be scared and then be told to be scared of those you most love. You're not allowed to connect in community. You're not allowed to support. And so what happened for people is workplaces became their community. It was often the only place they connected with other humans in very vulnerable ways because their kids weren't at school. They didn't go to the community hall. They didn't play sport. And so one of those things in workplaces that got this really right is that the workplace melded into your community space. And in fact, in some instances, in many instances where you had long lockdowns, replace community. And so what we saw was just a very kind of different change that then in how people related to work and what it meant to be well and performing, you know, in, in the workplace. Some of that will settle down. I think some of that people will forget. But I think we're seeing already a profound change in the relationship between people and the nature of work um, as they kind of re-examine a lot of the assumptions that were there for most of their work life. Yeah. I always saw the opportunity is that we, through this, we can recreate, right? We We can reconstruct what work and the workplace actually means. And somehow I don't experience a lot of, leaders taking that challenge on. I don't know what what you're seeing. Some do. Um, And a lot of people seem to be going back to old models or they are maintaining some sort of a hybrid way that doesn't seem to fit anymore. I I really experience a a spectrum, but, but a lot of leaders are not actively recreating the workplace. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of parts of that, Jörg. I think the first part is 
It depends which business you're in. If you've had a business and an organisation where people have been out in public spaces throughout the pandemic, think nursing, think teaching, think construction, think transport and logistics, um, think customer service, fast foods, for example, then what you've effectively had is a bifurcated workforce, right, where through the pandemic you had generally centralised office operations working from home that were felt safe and another group of people who were out in public. And, and the mindset there, which is really fascinating, is you know, almost all governments had a daily update that said the world's scary, don't go out in it. And so almost daily, someone would say in Australia at 11am, a politician would stand up and say, today there's been X number of COVID cases, this is what the restrictions are. And it was designed in a way that is like propaganda, right, to reinforce a simple message again and again and again to evoke a feeling of fear. Intent was very good, right? The intent, you know, unlike people think about propaganda as having malintent, but think about the tactics of propaganda were really repeated through the pandemic. And then we told some people, hey, I know I've just told you the world's really scary, but can you go out and do a job? And so what we're seeing in those workforces that leaders don't understand is, by and large, those people are mentally exhausted. And through two years, we had this narrative of the worker as the hero, right? Nurses are heroes, doctors are heroes, teachers are heroes, the hero just for doing your job. And then at the end of the pandemic, it's like, oh, no, no, you're no longer a hero anymore. You're just back to being a teacher again. So what we're finding already, and I expect over the next two to three years, is quite a lot of industrial action is that group of people feel as if their experience is not really reflected. And, I, you know, for teachers going, oh, I, to be honest, I'm a bit tired of being a hero. I'd much rather the cash. And I just have to pay rise for being a hero, right? I'm the one who held the economy together. Like, I'm the one who delivered you your fresh food every day to your supermarket. Can I please kind of have a pay rise? And the other part of your workforce going, I feel like the last two years I've been pent up and I'm ready to get back out in the world, right? And so the first thing I'd say to leaders that they've got to embrace is, Actually spend time with your people understanding what has been the experience of the last two years and understanding that for most executives, their experience, in fact, almost all executives, firstly, your role is to monetize your brain, right, which meant that you were being paid regardless. The second is that you had relatively secure employment throughout that whole period, right? So your sense of material risk is really different than a truck driver who says, if I don't go out in the middle of the pandemic, then I'm not going to get paid today. So the, the sense of economic vulnerability wasn't there. And then the third thing is, if you're an executive, it's likely that you're older, likely that if you have a house, you've paid off part of your house. So what we saw because of the economic situation is the older you were, the more you economically prospered from the pandemic, right? You had less economic vulnerability. You were able to stay in a house that you're able to keep paying off at record low interest rates globally. And you were likely through your pension or anything else to have investments in the share market that skyrocketed. So you come out of the pandemic going, wow, that was really scary, but having more in your bank account because you couldn't spend on overseas holidays and all that and think about what that means now for a woman who's 25, say, who has worked as a person in a supermarket, 
every day, working hour upon hour, feeling emotionally and economically vulnerable. Your experience now as interest rates go up, as the economy kind of settles down, as inflation really kind of skyrockets in many countries, is one of, oh, man, these last two years have been super hard and now I'm in economic stress. And when I kind of say that to executives, it's really about saying put yourself in the mind of your people and understand that your experience is not their experience. You know, probably my first practical advice for people listening to this would be segment your staff like you segment your customers. Right? We put a lot of effort in business to segment customers. We have an entire science around it. Right? Exactly. And, and I say, like, how many of you segment your staff? What do you know about you know, the housing situation of the 22-year-old in your employee? What does that mean for a single part parent who's you know, 36? What does that mean in terms of the political leanings of your people and whether or not? And they look at you kind of astonished as if you're you know, doing it. It's like you do that for your customers. And once you understand their profile, you therefore can start saying, what do I need to do to support their well-being and performance, right? What's important for a 23-year-old who's lost two years of their life that at the time where they define their identity through travel, through experience, they've lost it. They didn't get it back. They didn't go to university. They didn't go to college. They didn't go to school. They've lost parties, fun, all the things that make being 21 and 22 awesome. They didn't get And think about that then, what it means for, you know, someone in their 60s who may have had health vulnerabilities and what the last two years were. And those two people have nothing in common in their experience. And once you understand that as a leader, you can really understand what do you need to do. And that's, I think, the most important thing that a leader can do. Get inside the head of your people, understand their fears, joys, ambitions, and think about what it means to come out the other side with empathy and so that you can say, here's how we all come back together, because that's the challenge of the post-crisis pandemic world, which is we've, I describe it like, we spent two years ripping the tapestry of our community apart to its atoms. Said there is no community, there's just you in your house for two years. And then we suddenly go, oh, there's a community again. And people go, I don't know what that means, right? So <laughs> workplaces yeah. are communities as well. You've got to weave, as a leader, your job is to allow for that community to be woven back together. And the, there will be a picture that will be formed. The only question is in that weaving of our community back together, is it a picture that I look at and go, that's amazing, or is it chaos? And if we are not as leaders deliberate around creating space to create the picture that our people want and need, then the outcome will be a chaotic picture. And we're seeing that in some countries politically where their leaders are pulling the threads apart, where they're creating a chaotic picture. And we're seeing some countries where the leaders are working on social harmony, connectedness, and the communities responding positively. So I think that's a big lesson I'd say for leaders, you know, don't worry about how often your people come to the office. Worry about how the community is being knitted back together according to your mission, your values, and the type of teams that you want. If you do that really well, you come out of it really in a really fantastic space. What I actually resonate with also is that in what you're saying, you're actually putting a slightly different spin on the the diversity, equity, and inclusiveness conversation. Because the way that I would translate this is that this ripping apart of community has actually changed the face of diversity. Yes. Not that some of the 
the conventional categories are wrong, but it added layers, especially the economic layer, the economic vulnerability layer, the um, the demographic variables that really give us a very different experience throughout all of this. And so the idea of equity needs to re be recast almost, right, in those terms. And inclusiveness really means community building, building togetherness and community. And I think the, the interesting part is that economic variability is not something, at least in the Australian context, you hear a lot about. Go back to other kind of shared experiences like world wars. In Australia, we still venerate the young people who went to war in 1910s. Right, we have Anzac Day that celebrates and honours those generation of young people who sacrificed their lives to benefit the story of Australia as we're told it. Most countries have that same same story. And then I kind of say to leaders, hold on, largely young people sacrificed two years of their life, their identity, to keep older people like me safe. The health and social benefits that came with keeping COVID numbers low were disproportionately weighted towards older people. And young people went, okay, we'll sign up for that. A quirk of that was older people got richer at the expense of younger people. They had more assets. They were able to monetize their brain because they're more likely to have been senior olds. They're more likely to have higher salaries. They're more likely to have benefits of investment. And then we go, oh, okay, everything goes back to the way it was. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> think about what older generations did for you. Think about the baby boomers of like your older generations sacrificed a lot for you and there's a sense of the older people repaying that back to young people in, in intergenerational equity. And what I kind of find very odd is how we don't have that conversation in a diversity or point to a diversity inclusion sense. What did it mean for someone to be isolated for two years? What does it mean for someone in our workforce whose family, you know, in Australia we have lots of people who come from other countries and work here by themselves. So let's say your family's in India and you've come here to work in Australia and got trapped, you haven't seen your family. What does it mean for that person? And then we start getting into a really interesting, good conversation around we knit the picture back together because we start with a, hey, tell me about your experience. So when we knit it together, we don't knit it back together so that the dominant story is the only story in the picture. And I think that's what you talk about in diversity inclusion is when you look at that tapestry, what you don't want to see is a story of a single story rather than a rich tapestry of multiple. And people don't want to feel invisible in that knitting back together because then quite rightly they just get angry, they feel or do they get resentful and then you have other sorts of issues emerge? Well, or minimized. Again, I need to say, because some of these conventional categories are just too broad, right? To the, I mean, I, I love this advice you, you gave, you know, let's segment our employees the way we segment our customers because we, we would never be content with these diversity categories, at least the traditional ones, to categorize our customers. We would be much more nuanced, much more specific, not that some of these elements don't apply, but we would go further beyond, right? And in diversity, oftentimes we're content not to. And, and then when we piece community together, hopefully we don't go back to these minimizing labels and actually build a new tapestry that 
that accounts for the complexity and the nuance of our experience and senses of identity. Yeah, and and that would be my second advice for leaders. Once you segment, really then just spend time kind of listening, talking, and look at it through really practical lens. So the most kind of common question I get for leaders, which is, why are my people coming back to the office? And my kind of feedback to them is they are communicating with you something. It's just that the message they're communicating is not one you want to hear. So you can either ignore them, get angry at them that they're not complying, but they're not children. They're telling you, and you start with an assumption that says, my people care about this company. Because the assumption as a leader, if they're not back in the office, they don't care like I care. Right? So no, no, assume they care as much as you. The second part, which is assume they care about performing in their role as much as you care because that's the second kind of layer of excuse that leaders have around the office. Oh, they're just not as committed as me because they don't come to the office every day or whatever. (laughs) No, no, assume they're as committed. And then the third layer is assume they're smart, right? They're not idiots. They're, They're doing, they're making conscious decisions around how to do their job and manage their life as best. Once you assume those three layers, what you have is a commonality between leadership and your people. And then you go, okay, now I have to ask myself a question. How, if I assume those three things, how have they arrived at a different conclusion than I have around the value of the office? And what almost inevitably happens with leaders, you have to understand that for you, the office is your happy place, right? (laughs) It is the place where you feel in control, it's clean, it's tidy. You have often have executive assistants who arrange your diary for you. Oh, the trappings of power, actually. Trappings of of status, right? You have your people arrive easily for you. You don't have to book video conferences. So it's like for you, the office is an interesting, easy place emotionally now put yourself in the mind of someone with three kids under the age of five for them the office is a transactional space when they come to the office they have to wear an amazing emotional cost of i have to do drop-offs i have to get a kid to daycare i have to negotiate with my partner who's doing pickups what happens if the kid has you know daycare sickness and so for them it's like actually the office doesn't carry a sense of peace it carries a sense of cost And so then the kind of question for leaders would be, if that's true, what do I have to do for my people to make the benefits outweigh that cost? And my my advice for leaders is you've not ever kind of thought about that. And then once you kind of understand, you get in the mind of people going, oh, cool, it's a transactional space, then you can look at really practical situations. So one of those things that I'd say is a really practical outcome, if you've got a segmented workforce, you know a certain proportion of your people have kids in, say, you know, 10 and under, where you know particularly, say, school holidays are stressful because you've got to work but the kids are not school, for example, that you can then maybe say to you, how about we use some of that office space and create a place where all the kids can come on school holidays, set up all the spare computers, create open space, get crayons, maybe get a, like, fund a, a teacher or someone to come in for the day and entertain the kids. Maybe the cost of that is... I don't know, say a thousand bucks. Think about what that would mean to your people about their relationship to the office. All of a sudden, the office isn't a transactional space. It's a place that's happy. I get my kids. I might save money on after school care. And when you kind of say that to leaders, you go, oh, that, and go, it's not that hard. It's really practical stuff, but it starts with an assumption, which is I understand their worldview. I understand they care. 
I understand that they've arrived at a different decision for me. And once I understand that bridge, I therefore can come up with creative concrete solutions that in almost all circumstances costs you in material terms very, very little. But the outsized benefits for your people are enormous and therefore you get high engagement, high well-being, high performance. If you enjoyed the first part of my conversation with Jono Nicholas, the founder of Wellbeing Outfit, a leading provider of mental health and well-being programs, I hope you will also enjoy this second part. Thank you for listening. You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www.theinclusiveleadershipinstitute.com. Thank you.